Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. We go to Portland to hear from a black resident and nonprofit operator who explains how a legitimate civil rights movement has been hijacked and disfigured by the people who have their own agenda. The dullest man in Britain lives up to his namesake with his creation of a new calendar documenting, wait for it, roundabouts. The live event community has suffered through this pandemic, but now we're seeing a groundswell of support for the workers struggling to make ends meet. Good news for the Auto Workers Union, they've reached the tentative agreement with the Ford Motor Company. All of this starts now. The radicalization is really arresting, even if we're watching from the safe haven that is Canada, the peaceful kingdom. It's somewhat disconcerting because you're seeing people who are being intimidated into compelled speech. And against that backdrop, uh, I wanted to uh, introduce you to Terrence Moses, a black resident of Portland, Oregon, a U.S. military vet and operator of a nonprofit group whose, uh, I guess, testimonial appeared in the New York Times under the heading, Some Protests Against Police Brutality Take a More Confrontational Approach. Mr. Moses, good to have you on the Oakley Show here in Toronto. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon, and thanks for having me on. So what do you make of this uh, turn to compelling people to say things like uh, the Black Lives Matter mantra, put a raised fist? There was a, a video I was just watching that shows somebody was driving through Portland, inadvertently minding their own business in an SUV, and they were stopped in the street, window rolled down, and they were told to do it or else kind of thing. What do you make of that? Well, I make of that as a, a hijack. It doesn't represent what we, the black people and Black Lives Matter movement, is uh, out for. To me, that's just uh, appalling to say that if you don't raise a fist, um, you're either with us or you're against us. That's just not the case. Well, do you think then these uh, aggressive activists are losing the narrative? It's uh, definitely losing the narrative. It's taking the focus off what the real issue is, the constant brutality and murdering of, of black and people of color in America. So, I mean, why would they continue? I mean, this seems counterintuitive. If they're seen in that light and aggressive and intimidating, uh, you know, they say you get more flies with honey, and uh, this seems to be going in the polar opposite direction. What would the thinking be? Well, I think, I think what they're thinking is... Um, these people that are doing this uh, are doing it for their own glorification. They're not actually looking at what Black Lives Matter movement is. They just hitch their cart to a movement and they hijack the whole uh, rally. Well, do you think some of them, there was a story, I guess it was in the New York Post I was reading as well, where uh, some of the Antifa activists, protesters, you can call them what you want, uh, out of Washington or New York, I guess it was, turns out that they were, uh, you know, these uh, debutantes, uh, young women who were from 
the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, went to private schools, you know, were in the midst of getting like law degrees and such. Are they radicalized because it's fashionable now? Do you think that they're really, uh, you know, committed to the cause? Or is it just they want to be uh, doing this cosplay, if you will? I think I think um, they are doing this cosplay. They, they see something that's moving, that's getting a lot of light, and they jumped on it and pitched a cart to it and decided to uh, move it in a direction of what they believe in. And if they really were for what black people are looking for, they would actually stand this out there, just, just stand and listen to what black people are asking and let us lead it. And then they uh, follow with us instead of them leading and assuming what we want to be done. Well, there was so much support initially, uh, obviously, and, uh, you know, with the peaceful protests anyway, but somehow there was this cleft that took place, and uh, with the riots in Portland, in Seattle, and uh, a lot of cities were torn up, it almost seems like that really undermined a lot of what else uh, the peaceful protesters stood for. Do you see this as working in a counterproductive way? And... (laughs) As a consequence, uh, maybe a lot of people will recoil from that. And, you know, many uh, who might otherwise have supported will now either, uh, you know, just turn away or become apathetic about, is that a risk? That is a risk. I get asked probably a half a dozen times a day by my white neighbors as to they don't know what to do. They don't know if um, the Black Lives Movement is a thing. They don't know if it's a good thing. They don't know if they just don't know what side they should be on. And this whole movement to um, defund and um, abolish police has just turned this thing into something totally different and what uh, we wanted it to be. The message about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all those others who have lost their life have taken a backseat to all this. Again, with Terrence Moses, runs a nonprofit in Portland as well as being a veteran of both the U.S. Army and Navy. Do you see a distinction between uh, the group Black Lives Matter and the movement? Uh, and let's say the group is capitalized and the movement uh, not. Uh, I'm just trying to draw a distinction here. Do you see that distinction there? There is a, 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 for sure, a distinction. And when the protest uh, starts, there is a, a sense of peace. And they do have a somewhat of a message to uh, send to uh, our leaders and our people that uh, can make decisions on our behalf. But then, like you said, there's those people that insert themselves just for the sake of violence. And then at that point, that's where it takes its turn. And it becomes more about destruction. It becomes more about uh, antagonizing folks, police department, and so forth. And then it takes an ugly turn, and then the message gets lost. Well, yeah, I mean, they've been cited as a Marxist group that want to undermine certain American institutions and bring down society. I would think that's straying far from the original intent of the message. But you know, as a veteran of the U.S. Army and Navy, uh, I'm sure that, you know, it was 
somehow imbued in you the significance of the flag, the symbolic significance. So how do you feel when in your own city there are people who are going into neighborhoods, white residential neighborhoods that are proudly flying the American flag? It's part of the uh, urban landscape, as I've seen with my own experiences there. And they threaten, uh, take the flag down or they won't leave. They'll even threaten to burn homes down. What is that all about, Mr. Moses? To me, that I get what some folks are saying, that to fly the American flag means that you agree with uh, what America is all about. But to actually threaten someone because they won't take down a flag, something that they believe in, an idolization of a country that was built on by blood and tears of Americans is just absurd in I'm an American. I was black first, then American, and I chose to serve my country. And I fly my flag proudly, and so should every other American. Does it mean we agree with everything that America has done? Absolutely not. But there's always room for improvement. And those are the things we want people to do, is make room for the improvement. Not terrorize folks and tell them we'll come back and destroy your property because you fly your American flag. Well, they've even gone to the mayor of Portland's home, vandalized that. Uh, there was a rally outside Mitch McConnell's home, Senate Majority Leader in Kentucky yesterday. I guess it was in his home in Georgetown in Washington. This idea of even posting police officers' home addresses, doxing them. Is that a bridge too far? That's a bridge way too far. Uh, much like everybody say, we don't want our information public they get that same right. They don't want their information public. And to go and stand out somebody's home and terrorize their building, burn stuff, threaten them, threaten their neighbors, is just, it's, it's not, it's not a productive measure. It doesn't do anything that would be productive at all other than terrorize somebody and force them to either leave their home or leave the community that they grew up in. It's just not right to ask somebody to do that. Well, yeah, you're going to lose a lot of uh, public sympathy, I think, in that front, uh, these people who choose that as the route. But my final question to you, Mr. Moses, how do we put or how does America put that genie back in the bottle? I think the only way we're going to put that genie back in the bottle and with many other genies is to for our persistent leaders of civil rights movement, our leaders of uh, Congress and city council that understand what is going on to actually come out, hold conferences, and talk to the people directly and try and get some answers and some real systemic changes. We have to address these issues. And, and that's going to mean demilitarizing the police so that we can actually confront well, not confront, but so that we can talk with protesters. So maybe if we start there by not looking like we're the military, just coming in, talking human being to human being, and our our police department is coming in their natural uniform as a police-keeping officer and just monitoring the situation. This will force our leaders to actually make a change and so we can get some clear understanding of what the message is. The messages are gone and nobody is speaking. So I want to implore all our uh, religious leaders, 
all of our uh, city leaders, all of our um, educators, anybody that consider themselves um, to, for the greater good of all lives mattering, to stand forward and talk. Because before every life can matter, us black lives got to matter first. And we need them, our white allies, to stand up and speak, listen, and let's get something moving. Because we need the, the white people to speak. We need them to to be out in the front because they put, they hold the most weight. So well, I think there are. I mean, look, I, I don't think that there's uh, anybody who is unsympathetic with that aspect of it. It's these violent anarchists. I mean, that was the genie I was talking about. Can that ever be tamped down successfully? Or is this now all hell loosed on uh, the American body politic? It, it, it's going to be hard to say. I, I think it's um, it, uh, it's all hell unleashed. It's because they have one thing in mind, and that's totally embolished. Abolish the police department and total um, destruction. And until uh, we as Americans and our police are able to uh, differ and um, talk to these people, if that means incarceration, then that's what that means. But we need to do something more than we are doing now to try and um, get this genie back in a bottle. And I don't know what that answer is. But I do know that this is not working. Well, yeah, it's gone unabated. And uh, in cities, as you know full well, like your own backyard in Portland, Seattle, and other such. Uh, appreciate talking to you and uh, getting your insights. And uh, I wish you the best going forward, obviously. It's a nice city, but uh, you hate to see it torn up the way it has been. Terrence Moses, black resident of Portland, U.S. military veteran, operator of a nonprofit group. Self-admitted dullest man in Britain. Uh, Kevin Beresford has joined us on the line because he's a calendar designer of some note. Kevin, I appreciate you joining us here on the Oakley Show in Toronto. How are things? Uh, all right. My pleasure to be there. So you are the dullest man in Britain, uh, self-admittedly. Now, are you really dull or are you just a misunderstood latter-day Andy Warhol? Well, I don't mind the term uh, dull, being dull. I don't see it as a derogatory term. I think it's sexy to be dull now. Uh, dull is the new black, I like to say. <laughs> sure it is. Dull lives matter. Uh, so tell me straight up, uh, why are you considered dull to begin with? I think it's my uh, hobbies. Uh, I'm a roundabout spatter, first and foremost. I'm the president of the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society, also known as Lord of the Rings. That's my official title. Mm. But uh, I, I like to take a slice of English life that nobody else would, would bother with, with my calendars. Uh, I do postbox calendars, telephone booths, uh, Her Majesty's Prisons of, of, of England calendars, roundabouts of the world, car parks. I'm also the president of the Car Park Appreciation Society. My only problem with that is I'm the only one in it. <laughs> right. Uh, but if you don't appreciate them, then nobody else will. So uh, this is what you've done. You've sort of embraced the mundane as a virtue of sorts, right? Yes, I think artists have always focused on the mundane. You mentioned Andy Warhol there, didn't you? Uh, he used to uh, just do a lithography of a can of soup. Uh, and over here we have an artist called Tracy Emming, and she made a lot of money out of 
an unmade bed. That was a, a piece of the resistance, an unmade bed. And we have a pile of bricks in the Tate Gallery. And even Dan Goff would just pie, paint a pipe on a, on a chair. So I believe artists have always focused on the Monday. And it can be quite interesting when you think about it. Absolutely. I don't disagree. Kevin Beresford's with us, joining us from Worcestershire in the UK as Britain's dullest man. You know, to wit, I've seen posters like the Doors of Dublin, for example, and somebody's chronicled that. That's right in your wheelhouse, isn't it? Yes, it, most certainly it is. I, I'm actually a member of the Door Men's Club, which started in New York City, a guy called Leland Carson. He, he, and we're, we're quite a club, to be honest, on both sides of the Atlantic. And we get together each uh, year for the Anorak of the Year Award, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's quite stimulating, or, or can be. What, what's amazing with all these doormen, they are quite charismatic when you actually meet them, you know, they, they don't appear dull. And if you think about it, uh, you get rock stars with, with train sets uh, in, in their attic, do you not? You know, I mean, some people say a train set is quite dull, but Rod Stewart, he has a train set in his attic. What? Neil Young has a huge train set. He, you know, he puts on the whole conductor's uniform and uh, he plays uh, with the choo-choos like he's uh, eight years old. But, I mean, it's a very serious hobby. So here's the thing. Because you actually document these things, you take pictures, but you turn them into calendars. How do the sales of the calendars go? Like that one of uh, British prisons, for example. <laughs> or, yeah. or, I guess, the telephone boxes. I, I can see that being somewhat popular. Uh, how did the... the how did the boxes, they're quite iconic uh, uh, Structures, aren't they, in England? They're, they're, they're very iconic, but they are fast disappearing because the, 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 the uh, mobile phone, the cell phones are taking over now. So the, 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 they're being given over now to cash points and libraries, these little telephone boxes. And you even have a nightclub down in Devon that's a telephone box, which is going to be the smallest nightclub in the world, or, I would have thought. But they go down quite well. They sell. The only one that didn't sell, I did... Uh, Roadkill calendar, and that, that never sold at all. <laughs> all right. So what types of roadkill were featured in this 12-month installment? Well, yeah, well, that was very mediocre. You know, got the odd rabbit run over or a badger. You know, there was nothing too spectacular. <laughs> it seems England, after all. <laughs> right. You're limited in, I guess, uh, the flora and fauna there uh, in the U.K., Favorite car parks, that's another one you've done. I mean, seriously, this has got to be the crowning achievement for the dullest man in Britain. Car parks, like, where is the interest, even from a mundane level? I mean, are there distinctions to car parks? Of course, yeah. You, you've got the park and rides, haven't you, and the multi-stories. I've, I've driven for the length and breadth of England, John O'Groats, down to Land's End, and, and I saw some pretty interesting... There was one, the most haunted car park in Britain, and that was in Culloden in Scotland, which was the last battle ever to be fought on English soil. And also there was, was the Get Carter car park. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the film with Michael Caine. Yep. It was a, a fun British gangster film, and that's where he threw the local villain off the top floor. So yes, they've got a, I mean, a car park's like any other building, isn't it? It's a piece of architecture, and you can get interesting ones, or you can get duff ones, car <laughs> certainly unsafe ones so i mean this is now more than a hobby i take it i mean or if it is it's uh, consuming a lot of your time you're traveling hither and yon are you even going international with some of these projects yes uh, we, we do roundabouts of the world now um i have to rely on uh, roundabout enthusiasts from around the world to send me their favorite one-way gyratory 
Uh, but sometimes when I'm on holiday, I'll take pictures of the roundabouts in that particular country. And when I have friends, when they go on holiday, they do the same thing. And you have some fine roundabouts in Canada, do you not? I don't know. I mean, you tell me. You're the guy who documents these things. I pay them no, never mind. Uh, they're very rare, i got to say. We're more uh, attuned to the traffic lights, you know, the four-way stops and things like that. Oh, Hell, that's there's a- nothing worse. It's so boring. I mean, uh, <laughs> oh, this is coming from the dullest man in the U.K. You're slagging us for the colonials are boring. Uh, I got it. All right. Well, listen, Graveyards of London was another one of your projects. i got to say, I would find that fascinating. I mean, if there were some really, you know, late at night, the fog rolling in. There's famous people buried in the. You got Karl Marx in the Highgate Cemetery in, in London. So yeah, there's notorious uh, graves as well. Well, as yeah. So that was pretty fascinating. But going back to roundabouts, there's nothing more expressive than the one-way gyratory because you can put anything on a roundabout. And I've seen dancing statues, planes, trains, boats. You name it, anything can go on a roundabout. And in, in Australia, in their houses of Parliament are on a roundabout. And in Wellington, the capital of New Zealand, they have their national cricket ground on a roundabout. So much better than traffic lights. Roundabouts <laughs> give any local council the perfect opportunity to plant a garden in the middle of a road junction. How green is that? How green. <laughs> Kevin, you sure got animated when you got back on the subject of roundabouts. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> well, a, a labor of love. <laughs> yeah, the passion that stokes you with these calendars. So what's the next project so we can look for it? Well, I'd like to keep you powder dry a, a, a bit on that one, yeah, but there's going to be, I was thinking of park benches, you know, mm. I mean, you must have park benches, mustn't you? Yeah, there is a, a park bench society, but I'm, I'm not a member of that. But that <laughs> You ought to join up. There are a bunch of firecrackers, Kevin. That would be my recommend. I mean, you want high society and uh, kicks coming out the you know you join that uh, park bench society and uh, maybe somewhere down the road you can uh, document belly lint listen uh, we'll let you go on that note and when you do get an update uh, you're going to drop by again it's so much fun thanks for your time from the uk today my pleasure you got it kevin beresford in worcestershire <laughs> and you can find his work at www.roundaboutsofbritain.com people who are uh basically on needles and pins, wondering if they'll ever work again in their industry, and that is the live event industry. We've talked about it in the past with all the theaters dark now because of COVID-19. These people, I mean, and CERB is running out. Uh, maybe you'll get the transition to EI or the CRB, the relief benefit. Nonetheless, today is a date that they want to uh, increase the visibility and awareness of their plight. Andy Stinton, our friend here on the Oakley Show, is a live event producer. We've talked about this in the past. He's joined us today to tell us all about the significance of the Day of Visibility. Andy, good to have you on board. Uh, I see that Mr. Michael Downey, your producer, before had Britain's dullest man on before me which means I'm now Britain's most interesting man. <laughs> oh, okay, that's what you are. Uh, just like that ad for Dos Equis, you are the most interesting <laughs> man in the UK. Uh, he true. invented fish and chips. Uh, all right, so listen, uh, in this instant, though, I mean, uh, it's no laughing matter. We've talked about it, Andy, in the past. This industry is beleaguered, and you don't foresee it coming back for a while. As a matter of fact, you've often said, and I wince when I hear it, uh, Go find other work because it ain't coming back. So what do we say? I mean, uh, is there still a, a shot here in this day of visibility? What's the point of that then? 
The point of the visibility is, is that the, the live event workers are invisible to most people. You, you go see a great play, you see the actors, you, but you don't see the people that are behind it. They, they're the engine behind an event. You don't see those people. They're the invisible uh, workforce. They were also some of the first people out when this whole pandemic hit. You know, restaurants closed down over a period of time. Literally, it was like NBA is closed. And there's live event workers behind the NBA. We would just shut down one after the other. And we rely on people being able to, ga- to, to gather in, in, in a place, be it a concert hall, be it a hotel ballroom. And until we get up to 200, we won't be able to really go back to work. So we were the first first out and we'll probably be the last in. And it, it's, it's, I'm not going to kid you. We've had this discussion before. It's looking pretty bleak. So what we want to do is remind the governments that we're still around. Serbia is going to run out. And there is a lot of people with absolutely zero income. It's, it's not like a restaurant where you've got a bit of partial income. It is zero income. Well, all right. Uh, you know, in deference to the restaurants, and I'm going to talk about that after you leave because uh, they're facing their own interesting circumstances, not least of which is insurance, and you still got to keep the lights on, even though the business model no longer works. But your people are right out of business and uh, on the streets, are sitting on their hands at home, hopefully, you know, collecting something. But serve as you say, is about to run out. Uh, this day of visibility is also part of the overall uh, initiative to try to get. Well, some financial support from government. Uh, in what way, shape, or form? I mean, we've already got, as I say, CERB about to run out, the CRB, maybe putting people on EI. What other financial support would be viable? Well, continuing CERB would, would be a, a, a major start. I mean, there's not much else. Some people can transition to EI. It depends on their situation, whether they were freelance, work for a company, all of those variables. I mean, this part of the of, of of the population, this part of industry, needs some money to prop them up. So that's that's how it all came up with um, uh, lighted up life. I mean, it, and it has been honestly a humbling experience. A guy called Morgan Myler and Rob Duncan are running running this. We are now up to over 650 venues across Canada, and that has been a grassroots movement. And it goes everything from the Mervishes have been, been great, uh, Niagara Falls is going to be lit up, Confederation Centre. It goes from PEI to the Rogers Stadium out in Vancouver. And this was all done by individual little groups, little grassroots people, and they've organized themselves. And, and it, it sends a chill up you, to be totally honest, to see something of this size. So when people drive around tonight and they see you know, all the buildings lit up red. Think about these guys that are out of work that gave you some entertainment. Well, that's going to be uh, quite a an impressive show of solidarity, needless to say, light up live. Uh, just so we're clear on that, what, how many 600 buildings coast to coast that are venues that would put live events on? Because after all, this is where uh, the industry, live event industry, has uh, been totally wiped out. Uh, with some minor exceptions, but Roy Thompson Hall is going to be in there. Uh, Massey Hall, any any of the others? I mean, the CN Tower is also going to be lit up red tonight, isn't it? Yeah, and and it, just remember that live event. So uh, the Scotiabank Centre is going to be uh, lit up. Don't forget, it's not just the events as you think of a concert. Pro sports, uh, 
theater, it all needs live event workers. And so, I mean, there's just too many to list from little opera houses to, to you know, like we said, the CN Tower, the Calgary Tower. Uh, I mean, it, it, it really is an awesome thing. And, and I hope people look up and remember it because, you know, the thing that most people don't know, it's a $92 billion industry in this country. And that's a hell of an effect on the economy when you shut that down. Well, yeah, and it's unavoidable here because, again, people are still nervous with the pandemic and a second wave potentially coming through. Uh, there are some signs early on that that might be the case, certainly in Quebec. You know, you mentioned the NBA, but uh, I'm wondering if the NHL, I know Toronto was a hub. I don't know how they're going to, you know, cobble together their season, which would start again in December. And uh, again, that's only one part of it. Rogers, uh, or Scotiabank Arena, I guess here, Rogers out there in Vancouver, as well as Edmonton. Would those venues be available to stage those big sporting events, do you think, by December? No. I mean, basically, well, I mean, I say no, you know, I mean, yes, if you want to sit everybody six feet apart, I mean, that, that, that's the deal right now. What can we put in a hundred, 200? I keep, can't even keep track. It's, it's like some sort of Lego game, the way they keep changing it. We need a minimum to do a corporate event. We need a minimum of 200, but then if it's six feet apart, you look at a big ballroom that should take a thousand people, you're only going to get 200 in it. So it then becomes not financially viable to the producer. I can't see. And to be totally honest, on the side note, I don't really miss the crowds. I watch some sports and you don't see anything. They've got the fake stuff in there. But it'd be a hell of a job to get everybody to space out six feet at the Scotiabank place. Yeah, well, some NFL stadiums are doing it, but it's really sparse. For most part, it looks like family and, you know, a few uh, inside people. But uh I know in Kansas City last weekend, I think they had 17,000 in attendance in a seat in a stadium that seats like up to 80. Uh, so you're right. It, uh, the optics are not good, and that's not really going to help your people come back en masse. It may just be in select areas. But, Andy, always feel for you. I don't know what to say except that, uh, you know, I don't know the game changer is, I guess, going to be a vaccine or some way of mitigating the spread so that people feel confident about going out. But that's not going to help your people in the immediate term, uh, as you nope. keep reminding us. But tonight uh, will be a stark reminder of uh, an industry you say $92 billion and yep. with the lights. It's like when Jolie died, you know, when the lights went off on Broadway, Broadway went dark. Everybody recognized, you know, the symbolism and the significance. So hopefully they'll do the same wherever you live, uh, certainly in and around the GTA. You'll see that on the CN Tower, Roy Thompson Hall, Scotiabank Arena and other such Thanks for calling our attention to it again, Andy. Thanks for uh, all that you've done. We appreciate the uh, the publicity to make the public aware. Thanks, John. Yeah, I wish I could do more. Andy Stinton, live event producer, and this community day of visibility for the live event people. It's been a great day for, I guess, auto workers, specifically at the Ford plants in Oakville and Windsor. To that end, Danny was talking about this deal that was cobbled together with Ford. Uh, nothing messy like uh, a strike or a standoff as it was with GM. But Jerry Diaz was clicking his heels earlier today, talked in terms of this outcome being like hitting a home run. National President of Unifor has joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Jerry, is that about right? Feel like hitting a home run? Yeah, it, it, it feels pretty darn good today, my friends. If I think about where we were and where I'm sitting today, I'm quite comfortable. It's uh, It's been a hell of a journey. 
Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. Uh, where you were, yeah, I guess I'm referencing uh, the GM situation and where, you know, everything was really touch and go and jobs were lost and the company pulled up stakes. But it was just a couple, three weeks ago, I guess, uh, when you set that September 21st deadline with Ford. And here we go, September 21, midnight, and the deal got cobbled together. It seemed pretty clean and straightforward, was it? Anything but. Uh, as a matter of fact, we didn't get the deal done until probably about 5 o'clock in the morning. We had to extend the deadline. Look, bargaining with Detroit 3 is tough. Um, you know, there are companies that have been around the horn. They've got a strong global footprints, and they bargain for keep. So there's nothing easy when you're dealing with the Detroit 3, and to say that is a dramatic understatement is is fair. But uh, the reason I'm so pleased is is in Oakville, which is, frankly, Ford's last assembly plant in Canada. We didn't have a product beyond 2024. Uh, That's the end of the life of the uh, Ford Edge product. And so it really became a question of what do we do from here? We need a product. And then there's the whole issue of the future of the industry and that of uh, of battery electric vehicles. Uh, To date, John, there's been over $300 billion worth of announcements globally, and not one nickel was ever allocated to Canada. So this really changes the narrative. So not only will it solidify the footprint in Oakville, but it really starts to talk to, to the auto part suppliers about investing in Canada and setting up shop because this is going to be a this is going to be a, a long run here of uh, building vehicles in Oakville. I was going to ask, uh, how long is the commitment? Well, the first uh, vehicle will roll off the assembly line in 2025. Uh, there'll be a total of five different models uh, with the with a you know. Between 2025 and 2028, there'll be five uh, five different vehicles. So if you look at the natural lifespan of a product, you're looking at about six years. So this deal will have vehicle manufacturing running in Oakville till you know, 30, 34, 30, 35. And, and of course, that's just the start. That's where we're sitting today. So am I feeling comfortable? The answer is yes. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's generational. I'm sure the plants changed a lot since my day back in the day put myself through school working five summers there so you know yeah it's a, it's yeah a sentimental journey of i wouldn't recognize it today i guess with all the robotics which uh, leads me to wonder because i mean robotics has replaced a lot of the personnel and so on and so forth so uh this contract uh will needless to say protect jobs will it create additional jobs well, we're, it's, it's difficult to predict what the volumes will be and the headcount will be, but based on Ford's projections, we're looking at about 3,000 um, of, of my members uh, it, in uh, building the electric vehicle. So right now, we've got about 3,400. But if you look at the demographics of the plant, we have a lot of people who can retire from now till then. So I'm feeling pretty good. And it, you know what's the best piece of this and what makes me really satisfied is you know, we have a lot of new people in that plant. Uh, we've got, uh, went on a hiring binge, I would say. We have probably almost 1,300 members that have six-year seniority. And after the retooling and the, after the, you know, the the starting of the manufacturing of, of the battery electric vehicles, like these are people that now plan their future. They can sit there and they can, you know, buy a house. They can plan on having a family. You can really start to plan for the future, and that gives me personal satisfaction. Again, with Jerry Dias, head of Unifor, he's uh, obviously uh, very bullish on the deal that was cobbled together with Ford, Oakville, as well as Windsor. So when you mention that, uh, wages, pensions, benefits, all of these things, uh, you're satisfied right across the board uh, that everything is projected forward in a positive light, right? 
Yeah, uh, the economics I think is is uh, certainly meets our our members. Um, needs. Well, if I shouldn't say that, I'll let my members make that decision for themselves. We'll be ratifying it on Sunday. So, you know, like we did the best we can. I think we put together a, a very good deal. But, you know, the litmus test will be what our members think about it. So I never prejudge how this thing is going to end up because it's, it's, it's clearly their call. Their call. How important was the government money? The feds ponied up a half a billion dollars. Uh, no word yet whether Ontario will follow suit uh, in some regard anyway. What's your sense for it? Well, first of all, the feds haven't ponied up uh, half a billion dollars. Um, that was uh, that was reported, but it's an incorrect number. Um, but I'll allow the feds in the province to make their own announcements. Um, look, you're, you're not going to have an industry in any country unless the governments are going to play a role. Uh, nations around the world with successful auto uh, industries, it, it's all a partnership. It's between the governments, it's with the companies, it's with the unions. Everybody's got to play a role. And governments understand the importance of the auto industry. I mean, our members pay $2.6 billion a year in taxes. The companies, of course, pay their fair share. So everybody understands the impact that this has on communities. We, 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 we pave a lot of roads. We build a lot of schools. We build a lot of hospitals. So governments around the world understand that this is the key manufacturing industry, period, and fight, frankly, for these types of investments. So, look, are our governments going to play? I would expect so. Why? Because they know that it's a, it's a, it's a straight winner for them. So this almost $2 billion, $1.95, all Ford money then? No, not all Ford money. A, a chunk of that will be uh, government money, but that's the total of the investment uh, at, at this time. But we'll see, uh, because it's not unusual for, for companies to underestimate what it's going to cost. So we'll see. So, Jerry, uh, the other thing that uh, Doug Ford was mentioning about batteries, uh, electric vehicles running on uh, batteries, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, where does that stand as far as who's going to manufacture? Do we have the infrastructure to do that? Uh, Is that the next uh, shoe to drop? How does that work? Yeah, so we will be assembling batteries as a part of the $1.8 billion announcement in uh, in Oakville. Um, uh, assembling is much different, of course, in manufacturing, but what uh, this announcement has done is it's really forced the discussion on Canada utilizing its natural resources and raw materials, you know, to really excel in, in areas that we can. If you take a look at our raw materials, I mean, we've got nickel, we've got aluminum, we've got cobalt, we've got lithium, we've got, we've got it all. So if you want to talk about, you know, manufacturing batteries, Canada makes the most sense because we've got it all here. So I'm pleased that we're finally having a discussion in this country about what we should excel in, utilizing our strengths to create jobs. And so that's what where this discussion is heading. And we've been trying to steer it this way for a long time. So when Doug Ford talks about, listen, it's an opportunity to attract a battery manufacturer here to the province. He's absolutely right. And I, and I applaud him for that type of vision. In your mind, is this all part of the economic recovery? Because we're going to hear a lot about that tomorrow, allegedly, with this throne speech, the greening of the economy. Is this sort of going hand-in-glove with that whole prospect? Absolutely. My, I have to admit, timing is everything in this world. So for for us to announce a tentative agreement today with a throne speech coming tomorrow, well, governments need a plan. Like, governments that sit back and cross their fingers and hope for the best, um, that's not going to get you anywhere. The whole argument about, geez, we'll, we'll just create an environment for business and the trickle-down effect is going to benefit workers, well, that's, that's been a great argument for years, but it hasn't worked out all that well. 
So governments need a plan. And it, when coming out of a pandemic, um, you can't just hope for the best. You've got to get active. You've got to get aggressive. You've got to be progressive. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. But you know, the argument of a lower tax, uh, let's say corporate tax jurisdiction, uh, makes a difference, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of jobs, manufacturing jobs, you know full well, have escaped this country, gone to uh, less onerous precincts, the United States, uh, offshore, elsewhere. Uh, so don't you think that does matter in a certain sense, what uh, government tax planning and uh, tax regimes are all about? Well, you know what? There really never has been a real correlation between tax cuts for corporations and jobs. First thing that Jason Kenney did when he got elected premier uh, is he slashed uh, corporate income, uh, corporate taxes significantly. That hasn't worked out very well for him. The other side of it is Canada, for the longest time, had a lower taxation rate for corporations than the United States. But all the jobs kept heading to the southern United States. So I haven't seen one stitch of proof that somehow lowering tor- corporate tax cuts uh, uh, creates jobs. As a matter of fact, if you take a look at Canada, take a look at the United States, corporations today are sitting on more dead money than they ever had. So we'll see how it unfolds, but I never did buy that argument, John. All right. Well, you know, some would also add labor costs. Labor costs are another reason, you know, that uh, we may have uh, priced ourselves out of a competitive environment, but uh let me leave that for now. I know you'll argue against uh, no, that. Let me give you a little response. I mean, ultimately, <laughs> we're not going to play with Mexico unless you think that Canadian workers uh, should be making about 3 bucks an hour. And the other side of it, it's $20 cheaper to build a car in Canada, $20 U.S. cheaper to build a car in Canada than the United States. Yet a lot of the investments have gone to the southern United States. So a lot of things play part in decisions. Politics. Finally, this is this. I'm understanding this is part of pattern bargaining. So, uh, who are the next ones that are going to fall in line, or is that a fait accompli already? Since Ford, uh, that's the signal deal. Uh, talks with Fiat Chrysler and General Motors. Are they just a tap in? Yeah, well, there's no such thing when you're dealing with the auto industry. These are big global players. But Fiat Chrysler is up next. Um, the pattern has been established. But I need to talk to them about a product for Windsor, Brampton, and I need to solidify our Etobicoke operation. So I got my hands full with round two. All right. Well, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk during uh, the outcome of any of those rounds. Jerry, appreciate your weighing in here and explaining things to us this afternoon. Always my pleasure, John. Have a great day. Take care. And you, Jerry Diaz, National President of Unifor, the country's largest private sector union. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 